You know Geiger's bookstore across the street? I think I may have passed. You know Geiger by sight? Geiger's in his early 40s, medium height, fattish, soft all over, Charlie Chan mustache, well-dressed, wears a black hat, affects the knowledge of antiques and hasn't any. And, oh, yes, I think his left eye is glass. Hello. 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 My guest today is the amazing artist Debbie Cornwall. She's here to talk about her latest book project, Out from Radius Books. The work is called Necessary Fictions, and it continues her exploration into the complicated world of state-sponsored narratives, both real and fabricated, all around the waging of war and our complicity in these stories as a citizenry. Like her first book with Radius, Welcome to Camp America, in which she gained unprecedented access to photograph the infamous detention center at Guantanamo Bay, as well as some of its current and former inhabitants. Necessary Fictions chronicles her experience and impressions of the elaborate mock villages that have been constructed to train American troops preparing to deploy to the Middle East. The faux villages are replete with paid actors, many of whom are refugees from the very war-torn areas that the war games emulate. The training sites are located on 10 military bases around the country, and Cornwall saw them all. What stories we tell ourselves in the service of empire is a multifaceted and many-layered concept. But Cornwall guides us to a sobering analysis of the machinery of policy by presenting deceptively simple imagery. For those of you unfamiliar with Cornwall's work, we'll have images on the A.G. Geiger website, and at the end of the program, I'll provide links to Cornwall and her gallery representatives. But I first asked Debbie to talk about her book from 2017, Welcome to Camp America. Yeah, Necessary Fictions really grew out of that um, that book and that project, Welcome to Camp America Inside Guantanamo Bay, which was my first visual work after leaving a career as a civil rights lawyer. So in 2014, I made my first of three trips to the U.S. Naval Station at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, with the idea that I would try to find a different kind of picture of what was going on there, since after so many years, Americans had largely stopped looking. So what I found when I got there was quite a surprise. My military escort said to me, Gitmo is the best posting a soldier could have. There's so much fun to be had here. <laughs> because there's a match in the jazz hands. And after I got over my shock, I realized I haven't seen the fun. Show me the fun. Let's see what the fun looks like. And so oh. I proceeded over the course of three visits to photograph home and play spaces of both the guard force and the prisoners. Um, I knew I wasn't going to ever get to see what was really happening behind closed doors. By that point, the torture report, that the Senate subcommittee um, had investigated uh, and released at least part of. Um, we knew from WikiLeaks, torture, um, and the torturous interrogation techniques that had been going on there for, for many years. And we also knew how many of the 780 Muslim men once held had been cleared and released because it had nothing to do with terrorism after all. Right. So I took these pictures of, like, the golf course and the bowling alley and ended up 
juxtaposing those with prisoner spaces and then adding context later on in my travels around the world to a growing diaspora of men cleared and released from Guantanamo and then adding in some um, some commentary by way of pictures of gift shop souvenirs sold there and once classified government documents and some other tidbits. I'm sure Cornwall is asked all the time, how the hell did you get into Gitmo? But I, I had to know. So access is, is definitely um, a huge part of that project and all the work that I do. Um, it's not easy to figure out how to get there as an independent artist or photographer, you know, not supported by a magazine or something. And it took me a while to figure out whom to even ask for permission. Um, but it turns out lawyering skills come in handy. And I, I figured out who to ask for permission. And then the next step was, what do I say? You know, I'm, I was at that point a lawyer who liked to take pictures. I didn't really have anything to show for myself. And they needed a proposal. They needed a, a CV. Um, so I put together something that said, you know, I was a lawyer. You'll find that out during the background check. But now I'm an independent photographer. A little bit of puffing. Um, and I would like to document daily life of both guards and detainees, really being careful to use the military's chosen terminology rather than getting off on the wrong foot and calling them prisoners or inmates or, or anything else. Um, and I kept it really vague. And about nine months and a background check later, they approved my visit, and I ended up going three times. And yeah, those visits were over 2014 and 2015. The the book was published by Radius in 2017. Um, just for reference, the War on Terror prison complex is opened to take in the first prisoners on January 11th of 2002. So we are just over one year out now from the 20th anniversary, and they still haven't had a single September 11th trial. It seems like a radical transition to artistry after 12 years as a civil rights attorney who had been involved in the Innocence Project, which exonerates the wrongly convicted through DNA evidence. But as Debbie will explain, prior to her career as a tenacious litigator, she aspired to photojournalism, and the two disciplines of the law and investigation clearly have served her creativity. I, I was studying modern culture and media, so photo was really my okay. thing, and theoretical grounding, and cultural criticism, and all that, and um, I fully intended to be a photographer, I just didn't make it work. So I ended up finding a job as an investigator and trial assistant for the Federal Public Defender's Office in New York, and I loved it. So that sent me to law school after a couple of years, and you know, I went on and had a whole career representing wrongly convicted DNA exonerees and representing families of men who'd been shot and killed by police and traveling around the country trying to figure out what had gone wrong in the criminal justice system and how to use the process of litigation using each individual case as a way to not only figure out what had gone wrong, but to try to fix it. 
I like to think that we all have some sense of justice, but really only a few of us have a desire to take that sense to the front lines of the legal system. I wondered was there something in her upbringing, in her family life, or somebody who instilled a will to go to battle for the underdog? I've been asked that question before, and I don't know that I have a great answer. I grew up as an only child in a family where my mom went to work and my dad was home with me. Um, so it was untraditional in that way. And my mom was a sort of a take-charge executive, so I had that influence. But my dad spent a lot of time volunteering in the community, and so the idea of service, was ingrained pretty early on. Um, and I think the rest really developed from the opportunities that I stumbled into and developed over time. The Gitmo Cornwall shows us, as one reviewer described it, is modular, efficient, mass-produced, and recognizable as uniquely American. But such a description implies a pre-existing knowledge of what it is to be American. And her work is formally and technically magnificent, but it draws its power from how much the viewer knows about the subject in the photo. For example, there's a picture of a closed blue hospital curtain, ostensibly around a bed. It's antiseptic under the unholy glare of fluorescent lighting. Out of context, it's a well-shot photo of a curtain. I realize she has no control over what psychological baggage a viewer unpacks when they're looking at her work. So I asked her about the decisions she had to make about providing context while designing the book. It is all about context. That That's the word that you used. And my pictures are going to register on one level if you see them individually or in a photo essay somewhere. But you're not going to get the full experience that I'm trying to deliver. I'm really trying to create a context in the sequencing of images, in the juxtaposition of things that appear maybe that they shouldn't go together, and kind of working in layers. So there were the the home and play pictures juxtaposing the guard spaces with the prisoner spaces. Then you had these crazy, absurd gift shop souvenirs popping up. And then you had these from behind environmental portraits of 14 men cleared and released from Guantanamo and now living in nine countries around the world. I photographed each of them as though they were still held in Guantanamo and subject to the military's no faces rule for taking pictures. So I had all this, these three bodies of, of photographs. I had all of this documentary material from my research on uh, interrogation methods, on the legal justifications that officials had provided, um, sort of the bureaucratization of violence. And then I had found testimony from someone who was seriously injured being taken out of a cell in Guantanamo. And I, when I found that, I realized that is going to be the narrative thread to the book. Um, and I knew that that would create a sense of motion and drama. You want to find out what happens to this person and who he is and why he's there. And I edited that testimony, the sworn affidavit from a real case, so that you only find out 
that critical information at the end, who he is and why he's there. So the book is designed to be a little disorienting in the beginning, to throw a bunch of things at you. You're not quite sure where you are. And then to introduce this idea of testimony and redaction, these black boxes covering up some of the text and the testimony, black boxes covering up um, some of the official verbiage in the documents that government censors have blacked out. So this is a, a place where they advertise its motto as um, safe, humane, legal, and transparent. So in the very structure of the book and the materials I chose to use and sort of tweaking the idea that this is a fully transparent place, I wanted to highlight the fact that we were provided a show, but that more is really happening. So there's sequencing, there's juxtaposition, um, and there's design. So for each of the um, official once classified documents, they appear in a folded over page. So you see a glimpse of something that said classified or something redacted or, or crossed out. And the idea was to give the viewer a choice. You can look at that and turn the page, but you're aware that you chose not to look if you do that. I want to meet you where you are. If you do want to look, you're taking an affirmative act and you're opening and maybe you're turning the book perpendicular to read the full document, and then you're going to get another layer hmm. of critique of that sunny show of look how much fun we're having at the kiddie pool and at the lunch hall with the bright colored fish on the wall. Hmm. So the whole thing is designed to really be a holistic, immersive experience that requires some attention. Like I'm a flipper. When I go to a fine art bookstore, I am going to flip through those books. I'm probably from the back to the front. I would never get my work the way I intend it to be read. When you flip through, you're, you're, it's just probably not going to add up. Um, but I've made peace with that and um, I feel like the book form is actually the the best version of of my work because I can put it all together, right. adding in this sort of 3D, it's a physical object, you can hold it in its hand, it's either intimate and small and sort of personal, like Welcome to Camp America, or it's a heavy tome like Necessary Fiction. Well, as a bookseller, I, I'm partial to that. <laughs> Her work is fascinating because it involves incredibly restrictive circumstances that would normally compromise artistic integrity. Typically, when a project receives the stamp of approval from the very sources of power it seeks to criticize, its message is at best softened, and at worst, it unwittingly becomes propaganda. Her work, however, pulls no punches in revealing the banality of evil the cold machinations of a system grinding out brutal, unjust policies in which we are complicit. I asked her to comment on how she dealt with the restrictive circumstances and how she decided to approach her days within the military-industrial complex to achieve that vision. It, it developed over time. I mean, I arrived at Guantanamo prepared to cross-examine my way into access. I had 
downloaded every picture anyone had ever made, and I was ready with a folder of material to say, I want to see this, this, and this. And I realized almost immediately that was a losing strategy because it's very easy to say, oh, I don't know where that is, or we don't have a key, or the person who's responsible is out this week. You know, mm-hmm. it's easy to, to to stymie your efforts without even saying no. Um, so instead, I decided I would just look at what I was being shown, what I was being asked to see, and rather than having that be enough, I would add context later with additional kinds of pictures, with testimony, with the documents, and in talking to the men who'd actually had lived experiences as prisoners in these spaces. So after that experience, you know, once the book was was on its way and in good hands with Radius, I kind of looked back at it and realized there was something about the show, like this performance of American power. And that if I look at these kinds of spaces as sites of performance, like very American sites of performance, to go back to that review from The Guardian that you quoted, when I started at Guantanamo, I thought, I am photographing a state of exception. And at the first talk I ever gave about it, um, there was another artist there, and I had made a comment about Guantanamo being an un-American site, and she said, what do you mean? It's the most American place I've ever been. And over time, I've come to realize she's right. These, what look like states of exception, whether I'm looking at Guantanamo or the war, the, the mock village training sites on the military bases that I went on to photograph in, in necessary fictions, there's something about them appearing to be states of exception, but they're really just epitomizing so much about who we are and how our societies function, and how how power and the spectacle of power should operate. Mm-hmm. So that's what I what I looked at, and when I in my research discovered this quote from 2004 from Karl Rove, it opens the book. It, Karl Rove, uh, for those who are lucky enough not to remember, uh, was George Bush's chief political strategist. And he was quoted in the New York Times in 2004 as saying, we're an empire now. We make our own reality. Mm. And it struck me like that, there it is. That's so candid. And what we're experiencing now is not new. It's just exposed more obviously for us to see the scaffolding of that show, that spectacle of state-created realities. So that's my practice. I'm looking at state-created realities through that lens. Here's how power is performed. Here's how fictions are deployed. Here's how they're consumed and even embraced by members of civil society. I asked her to talk about the new series, Necessary Fictions. It seems not so much a sequel as more of a natural extension from the themes she explored in Camp America. Necessary Fiction looks at American state-created realities through immersive, realistic military training scenarios that are run on mock village sites, 
constructed on military bases around the country. I photographed 10 of them during a three-year period. And these sites are built like stage sets to look like Afghan or Iraqi villages. And they are populated by role players, which include costumed Afghan and Iraqis, many of whom have fled war only to recreate it in the service of the U.S. military. They're playing out sometimes nightmare versions of their past lives. They might be cast as shopkeepers or village elders or as insurgents or even suicide bombers. And then there are the real American soldiers, Marines, National Guardsmen and women who are training just before they deploy, sometimes right before they get on the airplane. And they enact their possible futures in combat right. and even as possible casualties of war. In addition to photographs of the war game sets, Cornwall also includes haunting portraits of several role players, both civilian and enlisted, some of whom are made up by Hollywood stylists to appear gravely wounded. So there are two different kinds of those pictures. Um, in the body of the book, there's a chapter on casualties, and you'll see some of those portraits. And then there's sort of an extra surprise tucked into an envelope at the back of the book. So what you're looking at are three, typically three-quarter portraits of soldiers in fatigues with some gory wound that's been painted on by a Hollywood makeup artist flown in between movie gigs. Talk about American, you know, and I write a little bit um, in the in the body of the book uh, about um, who those people are and where they're coming from and where they're going to um, and what the experiences are of the soldiers who are, who are dressed this way and how they're reacting to it. At the end of the book, um, there are three pages kind of tucked away that are laid out like yearbook pages, and and those have an extra surprise. Um, they're slightly different, and um, I couldn't not include them in the book. Uh, once the first soldier said, can I take one smiling and send it to my girlfriend? And I said, sure. You know, I had no intention ever of photographing any of them with a smile on their face. It felt like I needed to be sober and respectful. And I saw it in the viewfinder, and it just sizzled. Just this disconnect between the bloody wound and the cherubic, angelic, radiant smile of this young soldier. It really felt like the tension encapsulated so much that I had to continue inviting people to smile if they chose to. In these fascinating portraits, some of the subjects mug for the camera. Others act out the pain from their theatrical wound. Some sit as if to be painted. But they are role-playing a fiction of themselves as dead or wounded, which, of course, is a very real future possibility. Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting. I had very little time with each of them. So there's sort of an assembly line from the makeup artist's room, uh, you know, finishing... And then there's only so much time until they're sent out into the field to, to perform. So 
maybe I had five or ten minutes with each person each morning. Very like we started sometimes three thirty in the morning, and it's almost impossible to develop any kind of rapport. Certainly not a relationship um, in that limited amount of time. But I wanted to get a sense of what it was like, you know. So I asked everybody, you know, how does it feel to be dressed this way, knowing that you're about to deploy. Yeah. And also, you're like, how do you want to present yourself in this picture? So some people said, you know, played it off like a game. And that made sense on some core psychological level, right? Like, I can't wrap my head around the enormity of this, so I'm going to play it off like a joke, which is on some meta level is what all of this is doing, you could argue. And then others said, no, I wouldn't be smiling if this were my situation, I want to enact for the camera how I would feel. Right. It was really strange. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah the, 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 the images are stunning that way because of the, the dichotomy. Of, you know, you know it's fake, but it's kind of not. <laughs> well, this is what grabs me. That series is we're not shown injured American soldiers. I mean, for no more than a decade, newspapers were not allowed to run pictures of flag-draped coffins being returned from from wars abroad. So there's something taboo about it, but there's also something that, because it's fictional, we can look. And that's something, you know, when I get to installing this work, I really want to play with with the viewers um, sort of how they react to these images. And I've actually started playing around with it in my travels back when I was allowed to travel. Um, and I would stop people in airports. In the Dallas-Fort Worth airport, I was a really small sample size. Over several trips, I probably got 12 people and I would just walk up to them and say, you know, I'm an, I'm an American artist and I'm, I mean, I'm an artist. I'm making pictures of American soldiers. And I wonder if you have a minute just to take a look at a couple of them and, and tell me what you see and what, if anything, comes up for you. And it broke down in, into two camps. The first camp was mostly men, anecdotally, and they said, oh, that's fake. And that was it. Like, mm-hmm. I don't need to look at this because it's not real. The other camp looked and saw that it's obviously staged. These people are not actually injured, but became emotional. So for them, the fiction enabled them to think about the emotional reality of an injured soldier. It's like some of us are primed to respond to that signal and others think I don't I don't have to deal with it if it's not real. Which which that interesting. Which pictures did you show? The people laughing or smiling? No. No. The serious pictures. Yeah, so it's it's a very small sample size, but I'm curious to develop um, 
some system to ask people what those questions, what do you see and what if anything comes up for you and maybe to learn a little bit about them, like are you in the military or from a military family so we have a little bit of context. But I mm. think if we grow the samples over time and track them by, you know, when the exhibition is and where it's shown, we might learn um we might learn something about who we are as citizens and and our relationship to killing and death and war and military service and all the other things that relates to. I remarked that since we became an all-volunteer army after Vietnam, the burden of war has been borne by the warrior class, and such an arrangement sets up an easy disconnect for the general population. For Americans who are not in the service or don't have family or close friends in the service, unless you're an activist, you're probably not paying that much attention no, to absolutely. the fact that we've been at war for 18 years and maybe we think it doesn't really have much to do with me. But the right. reality is, you know, the wars are being waged in our name and it really does have to do with us, and it's actually happening on American soil. This militarism, whether it's um, in a form of gameplay or in the industry that has built up around wars and war games and the way in which those games are kind of seeping into civil society and militarizing the police, I mean, it, 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 all, it really never ends. It really is very much to do with all of us. Here at home. The name of her book sparked a vague thought of Nietzsche and his theory about necessary fictions from my college philosophy courses oh so many years ago. To be truthful, I had to Google jog my memory specifically about his ideas on constructed truths versus discovered truths, provisional truths versus absolute truths, and belief systems that cannot be proven to be true and sometimes can even be proven to be false, but are nonetheless necessary, because without them, we would be without a compass in a world of chaos. I wondered if this thinking underpinned Cornwall's overall approach, or was it a coincidental layer she found along the way as a neat summation of what the project had become. In all honesty, I did not was not familiar with the Nietzschean um, necessary fictions, but it it really fits. My thinking yeah. had been yeah. <laughs> um, I mean it's lucky for me. Um and, and all of those ways that you just described it, yes, it's all of that. And also I like the ambiguity of necessary fictions because it it provokes the question of what's necessary. From the state perspective, it's necessary. It's a state-created reality. But part of my practice is to invite you to look critically at how those realities are operating and to really take a second look at, at whether they're necessary or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it works on that psychoanalytic, philosophical uh, level as well. And I'm always looking at the systemic, how is power operating, and then the really personal so, you know, in the book, I'll write about PTSD or I'll write much more intimate personal anecdotes or or texts um, 
to balance out the sort of the bigger picture. Yeah, I got that in the, in the differentiation between the books. I think um, the the first seems to be more about the systemic and the second more personal about, you know, certainly through the portraiture and, um, and the role players. Yeah, I, tr- I try to balance both the systemic and the personal in both books. I think the biggest difference may be that I'm writing a lot more in the body of necessary fictions and I'm mm. writing in the first person about my own experiences and conversations I've had and reactions and stories I heard um, in addition to um, sharing some of my research that is far ranging and surprising and crazy and absurd and dark and hilarious. <laughs> Cornwall is not stopping at expressing her practice in book form and is formulating plans for more immersive experiences in installations and film. I asked her to give us a peek into her plans. Well, at this point, everything seems to be on hold in terms of planning dates. Um, I had an exhibition planned for to open in late November, which will not happen. Um, so it may be some time before I can show the complete work, but I'm using this time in isolation, what was lockdown in New York and likely will be again, to adapt some of these ideas and even one of the specific stories that you'll find in Necessary Fictions to film. And I'm working with found footage, and the idea is to take one story of what happened when fantasy and reality clashed with grave results and to tell that story in three different ways in three different genres. I'm collaborating with the survivor of a police shooting Mm. to tell the story through Hollywood film clips with archival police training films and if all goes well with fundraising and with COVID in a staged reenactment and my my over the coming winter backup plan is to learn Grand Theft Auto and uh, do a video that way. Gotta keep moving forward. Yeah. GTA, one of my favorites. All right. Well, I'll be calling you for tips. <laughs> so you would be working with the with the with Rockstar or the the people that do it or I don't understand what you mean by that. So going So the idea is to um modify the visuals so that they um they replicate the environment in which this actual incident took place and record video. Um that would then be paired with a, a soundtrack distilled from ongoing conversations I'm having with with the person who survived the shooting about his experience of it. I feel confident in in the first couple of iterations, you know, the the police training film. This is part of what I was once an expert in as a lawyer, you know, police training and how 
you know, de-escalation matters and the use of force continuum. So I feel on solid ground with that and, and with the using Hollywood film clips to tell the story versions. Right, right, right. Um, so I've got a lot to learn and there's, there's a lot to, a lot of balls in the air, a lot of, a lot to, um, to keep in mind putting together a project like this. Right. Well, so I'm feeling fun. it out. Thank well, you. I'm sure you bring your expertise to bear as you have on the previous projects. It'll be very exciting to see you. Excited to see it. Thank you so much for the chat. Um, I love being asked new and different kinds of questions, and um, great to have this opportunity to, to talk about my work with someone who clearly has looked at it and gets it. I, I really appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. I really like it. You've been listening to A.G. Geiger Presents Tales from the L.A. Art Underworld. And my guest today has been the artist Debbie Cornwall. And we've been talking to her about her two series titles, Welcome to Camp America, and her latest effort titled Necessary Fictions, both out on Radius Books. We'll have some images on aggeiger.com, but you can learn more about Debbie at debbiecornwall.com. That's D-E-B-I. C-O-R-N-W-A-L-L, DebbieCornwall.com, and as well at Radius Books. A.G. Geiger Presents is produced by me, Michael Delgado, in conjunction with the Mayfair Hotel, the music and artist management company Regime 72, and of course, A.G. Geiger Fine Art Books. Check them out at MayfairLA.com, Regime72.com, and AGGeiger.com. Be sure to visit aggeiger.com and browse our site for rare and hard-to-find titles from our carefully curated collection. And please follow us on Instagram and Twitter, where we recommend new books and events. I'm Michael Delgado. Thanks for listening.